to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. As we celebrate our podcast birthday this month and embark on our second year, we're extremely grateful for your continued support. To show our appreciation, we're launching a podcast review contest. It's easy to enter. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Bono Happy Hour. We'd love to hear from you. And your honest feedback makes it easier for other listeners to find the program, expanding the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Winners will be selected from those people who leave a review before October 31st. That's Halloween. And will be announced on our show and on our blog, the PBI. Pro bono as we see it. Today's guest is once again Angela Vigil of Baker & McKenzie. Angela is based in Miami, and we had such an incredible and expansive conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part two, we discuss teaming with corporate clients on pro bono projects, the evolving law firm and pro bono landscape, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. We're talking to Angela about the wide world of pro bono. So you've been in your position for a while. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say 13 years. <laughs> um, looking back, how have you seen law firms and pro bono evolve and change over that time? What are some of the biggest differences from then to now? A few. I would say first and foremost is the growth and proliferation of the role of having a pro bono counsel, whatever that might be called, pro bono partner, pro bono professional, pro bono manager, pro bono team. Some firms have really invested and made it a team. I think they've all done it for many reasons, not the least of which is it is a legal practice, so someone should run it and run it professionally like a legal practice. But the creation of that role, the development of that role, the evolution and the growth of that role, I think the numbers are up around 150 law firms that have a pro bono professional whose sole job is to think about how to make sure this practice is exactly at the level of excellence that every other part of the law firm's practice is and to grow it. That's a big factor. I think the change of law firms thinking about, you know, how they're going to reimagine themselves with economic pressures and economic downturn that we're sort of creeping our way out of, the change of the profession to the from the vanishing trial to um, uh, in-house departments really changing what they're expecting from law firms for legal services that have to do with billing and those kinds of things, make law firms sort of look internally and say, what kind of a place do we want to be? And I am very proud to say that I hear more and more about not only in-house departments, but also law firms in that conversation about where do we want to be, which always has to do with business and excellence and thriving and, um, you know, making great resources for everybody to make great livings, also recognizes that part of their responsibility is that they're lawyers and they have a license and that they want to fulfill their obligations to the bar. And sometimes that is very practical. It's how do we keep great talent? We keep them happy, we keep them passionate, and we make sure that they're working on things that draw at their heartstrings at the same time as they're working on their other work that from time to time might not draw on their heartstrings. And it's also very practical in that you gain knowledge about how to be a better lawyer no matter what lawyering you're doing. So if your first deposition happens to come from a pro bono case, it's certainly not knowledge you lose when you're applying it over in a billable matter, and vice versa. So I think those are practical reasons. The real impractical reasons are there's something that drives people to go to law school, to be part of a system of justice that underneath the whole country really runs things. And I think that the challenges our country is seeing, whether it is um, the challenges with law enforcement and black neighborhoods around the country, whether it is discrimination against uh, LGBTQ 
populations, that's really challenging whether our justice system is meeting needs. And that's heard, that's reverberated in law firms. It's not because law firms are special, it's because law firms are full of people and smart people. And smart people want to say, well, if this is really happening, do we have the right system? And that makes you want to go and look for a way to be part of the team that's going to fix it. And that often involves getting involved in something that is truly and inherently pro bono because it's system change. One aspect of pro bono practice that we've only scratched the surface of on this podcast is teaming with corporate clients. And this is an area in which you and the firm have a lot of experience. Could you walk us through some of the whys and what's and how's of teaming with in-house counsel on pro bono matters? I'm happy to because I'm so proud of the work that we've done, and I am excited to say that it's work that we've done actually since before I even came to the firm. Starting in 2002, we were doing you know live clinics in our Chicago office with in-house counsel from Abbott Labs, and that has expanded to across the world doing work on street children with Salesforce and Merck and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals and Accenture and folks like that. So huge companies that everybody knows, just daily names, to companies that people may not know know their names daily, but they rely on the success of those companies all over the place. I'd say the main driver is that we like doing great work, and so the more diverse our teams are to do that, and the bigger those teams are, the better. So if I can have four volunteers from Baker and McKenzie who say that they want to help look at you know, the, the technology and child welfare systems and figure out how we can help the Department of Health and Human Services develop better practices there, or I could have eight because I've got volunteers from any legal department outside of our own, um, it just makes for better work. It makes for more work to be able to get done, and it makes for people making friends while they're making work, which is which is another added benefit, not only from networking and business, but just for being better lawyers and and more diverse people. We have had certainly in the last 10 years a direct incline growth of in-house departments that have come to us before we even never thought of coming to them and saying, you know, this is something we want to do. And it's informal in our department or it's not really active at all in our department or it's just something we've been meaning to get to and we're drinking from a fire hose so we haven't had a chance to. Can you help us develop it? And we're really proud when we can lend some of the experience that we have to friends to say, here's how you might make it work for you. So part of the drivers from them. Part of the driver, though, has been from us when we get to say, we're doing something really exciting. Do you want to come help? Or we're really doing something really exciting, and we'll do it better if we can get some of your expertise in that space. A couple of years ago, a great example of a, a couple of years ago, we did a project related to human trafficking with the Nexus Institute in Washington, D.C., and it was really focused on Latin America. Baker McKenzie has a robust presence in Latin America. We have great lawyers and a lot of different offices. But we went to friends at HPE who also had not only robust lawyers, but other professionals who could help us um, examine the questions that related to human trafficking and the Palermo protocols that we were trying to address so that we could put together a, a product that would help prosecutors and judges better handle human trafficking issues. Our work product was better because we had a partner. We are, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but we are better when we're together. And the way it works for us is that we never go into anything sort of 70% one side and 30% another. It's always 50%. Um, our energy it goes into the legal work directly, and so you'll never see a chapter of a, home, a homeless youth handbook that's written mostly by one person and someone else just looked it over. It's really drafted, edited, and burst from cradle to grave by um, people on both sides. But I have to say that as I've watched more and more companies sort of say, we'd really like to get involved in pro bono, they're also relying on their experience 
experience that was born in great law schools and clinics that introduced to them this obligation as they were introducing everything else we learned in law. Many of them comes from experience they had in fantastic law firms across the country where they were active in pro bono and they went there and they want to bring that and continue that tradition inside their companies. And still others get it from the companies themselves having a sense of corporate social responsibility. We need to be doing things in our community. What's going to be the legal component of that? It is hard to make change in a community without looking at how the justice system affects whatever issue you're talking about, whether it's hunger or how hospitals function or school or, or jail. Some of them are really obviously legal issues, some of them less obvious, but all of them are really strongly affected by a well-functioning justice system. So wherever that inspiration comes from, whether it's the in-house departments or us, it's grown absolutely every year. And we almost have more interest in doing these projects with us than we can even handle um, from time to time because there's just there's so much to do. We get fantastic opportunities in front of us, and it's just a matter of prioritizing. Hard to do, but prioritizing and figuring out, okay, if we do this, is it going to really have an impact? Or is it something that somebody else can do, and we should go do something that's harder or a little bit more challenging or a little bit more gap-filling in a way that only outside private attorneys can fill gaps? Do you have any tips or best practices for law firms who are just getting started in the teaming with corporate clients in pro bono space? I do, and that is to talk to folks that have done it already and to lean on all of us because there are um, little bits of differences of things that you might want to think about. I don't think um, lawyers in firms always think about the different sort of ratio of administrative staff to lawyers, perhaps, that they might see in-house departments versus law firms. And so if you give a little bit of thought to that, it will make sense to you why it is that printing 20 copies of something is just easier on a law firm side than it might be on an in-house side, but maybe something else that because the in-house department department has tons of them, like, you know, cafes around the campus or whatever it might be. It makes it easier than at the law firm. So really talking to folks that have done it already is so easy. And the entire community of pro bono professionals across the country is there's no turf in pro bono. I, think I should make T-shirts that say that. There's no turf in pro bono. Everyone's willing to share the best of their experiences and quietly and embarrass the worst of their experience so that you don't have to experience it again. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is it, it's not something that you can get into just for the purpose, for any purpose other than trying to solve the pro bono problem. So there's other advantages, no question. There are advantages to business development and networking. There are advantages to professional development, all kinds of things there that are good for the business of both the law firm and the in-house department. But the key reason for doing the project has to be that the, that the project itself is why everyone is there. We're doing a homeless youth handbook. It's because we all care that that homeless youth handbook is done and that it's great and that it's important. And we all believe that it is an important thing. If you think you're working on something that's not important, volunteers will die off, quality will go down, things will dissipate. It won't have any advantages, pro bono or otherwise. So it's got to be driven by a passion for the work that needs to be done. Could you share one or two goals, short or long term, that you have for your pro bono practice? I could certainly try. <laughs> My um, uh, The goals for the pro bono practice really get, at our firm, really are products of a lot of people thinking and talking about it. We talk about goals a lot. Um, and there are tinier goals. They're, they're, they're not going to sound like, you know, change the world kind of goals. There are things like, um, can we make sure that in the space about uh, justice crossing borders, for example, that we can find a way that the not only the name and influence maybe of our law firm, but also the real passion of our individuals can have 
ha- can aid the NGOs on the ground, the non-governmental organizations, the non-governmental organizations on the ground who are addressing, what is it, 10 million uh, Syrian families right now. So that's not, that doesn't sound like a huge goal. That sounds like a very small piece of what we're doing, but it's, you know, you can't just sort of go out and help. You have to make sure that you're strengthening the people that are best at helping. So in that, in that case, our real goal is to try to help move them forward and make it easier for them to do their jobs. So we get to partner up with fantastic organizations around the world doing that, but we partner up behind them. We're the quiet back office while they are the faces. In other places, our goals and in other areas of law, our goals are really to be loudly known as the face of issues so that people will come to us and ask us to help more. For example, in the U.S., we're really focused on right to counsel for children and how many kids stand in courtrooms alone without anyone next to them. And whether that's in child welfare, where you've got a 16-year-old foster youth who doesn't understand why he's being moved over and over and over again, and nobody seems to be saying what he wants to have said, whether it's an unaccompanied minor who just came here from another country and doesn't have a technical right to counsel, so they're standing in front of a judge with no one pleading their case, whether it's in juvenile justice, where in many places across the country you can waive your right to counsel, so even though, like adults, you have the right to counsel, you can say, I don't need it, and then end up wondering about the decision from a detention facility later on when a case went past you without any counsel standing up for you at all. That's just one of the examples of an issue where we've had a lot of lawyers say, yeah, I want, I, let's put us in front of that. Let's make sure that when people think about that issue and they think, I can't imagine how private lawyers would be interested in helping us with this, one of them says, hey, Baker McKenzie cares about that. And they've done a lot of work in that area so they can be good partners in the effort. But I'd say all of our goals are, are bit by bit taking steps towards issues for impact as opposed to overall goals for the firm. Our goal for the firm is just have us add as much value as possible in areas where we know we can make a difference. I, I think goals come in all shapes and sizes. I'm not judgy. So I, I, I think that was very enlightening. So, okay, this is going to be or could be excruciatingly difficult. It's like choosing which child you love more. I know that's impossible. We love them all. Um, but what are some examples of pro bono matters that the firm has done, that you personally have worked on, um, that have been particularly meaningful to you. Tell us some stories. Well, I am the mother of four, and my children are 13, 11, 8, and 6, so it's entirely possible they will listen to this podcast. Exactly. So first I will say, you can never choose a child. Subscribe, never kids. Use, Subscribe. Yeah. Any more than you can choose the product. But I can say that there's been some moments that have just made me realize, um, because some people said, I'm going to sleep a little less tonight or this month. Um, I'm going to you know, forego doing something that would have been fun or would have been, you know, something recreational, I'm going to go and make a difference in this, uh, would have made a huge difference. I will tell you that we had um, on-the-ground teams across the entire globe for a period of about a week and a half during ne- constitutional negotiations a couple years back. Um, it was in helping draft tiny little edits to a constitution that was being debated in a in a country whose name doesn't matter, but it was, you know, they were doing 24-hour negotiations to try to meet a new UN deadline, and we were their counsel for 24-7. In every single time zone, there was someone at Baker McKenzie who was working to answer whatever question popped up in that zone at that moment for a good period of about 72 hours. And seeing us be able to respond, like, briskly and smart and, you know, with a huge background because we were ready and we were prepared, we were like an attack force. 
course, we were like the the seals of uh, an issue. And it was just one of those things that you just felt like you were part of the greatest team in the world. And that really affected my thoughts about how you not only just have to be there when it's easy for you, Right? So you not only have to help when you can fit it into your schedule, but sometimes issues are important enough, and peace and constitutional democracies are those, I think. You have to be able to be there when it, they need it. And that's not all the projects and not all pro bono, but some of them that really make a difference. I'd say another example is recently we had the great pleasure of uh, joining together with friends, uh, co- corporate friends, to support what are called consultations. The United Nations is about to release in 2017 a general comment on illegal needs of street children. And there is no international law that is directly on the issue of street-connected children. There is the Convention on the Rights of the Child that was passed 25 years ago, and despite outstanding advocacy around the world trying to urge the UN to add a comment to that that talks about street children in particular, that hasn't happened until now. And in 2017, there will be a general comment. And the United Nations was so diligent and thoughtful about how to pull that together, but a combination of resources and time was going to make it that they didn't have the opportunity to sit in rooms with street-connected children themselves live and have experts sitting with them and listen to what it is that those children experience to help shape that law. And I'm really proud to say that when that general comment gets released in somewhere in the late spring, early summer of 2017, it's going to partially be a product of consultations that happened in a lot of different places in the world. We helped host one in Brussels together with Salesforce at Google's offices with kids from 16 countries across Europe. We um, hosted one in Brazil with help from Merck and lawyers from Merck doing pro bono work to support that. In Mexico with Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. In India with the global department of Cargill. And what we did was all kinds of pro bono work preparing for it and legal research documents and Q&As and pulling together all these things on the human rights issues that are important for street kids. But then I had, because I get this great position, I got to go. And I got to sit in the room with about 60 children from Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and different parts of India and Pakistan and listen to them talk about a things that they want to see in the world to change how they live. And just to give you an example of sometimes how eye-opening this can be, when they talked about it and you'd expect them to say, get me off the street. I don't want to live in a tent anymore. I want to know where I'm sleeping tonight. That wasn't most of what you heard. What you heard was, I don't want my friends drinking out of water bottles anymore. Um, I'd like the police not to beat us up. We're afraid to go to school, and there's there's fees for school here in in India, and so we can't afford them, so we don't go. And I wanna I wanna learn. Nobody was saying save me. They were saying dignify me. They were saying um, let's you know realize they weren't saying it in this language, but sort of realize my rights. I got to tell you, I think I grew two feet taller that day because so much of not just the event and bringing the children together and giving them a voice and giving them a megaphone, but also making sure that turned into legal language was because Baker McKenzie was doing something important in pro bono. We were pulling friends in to help us do it because we needed all the help that we could get. And the result is going to be the first international law for street-connected children, not just us, together with hundreds of children's advocates around the world and the consortium for street children that brought us this opportunity from the United Nations. But I, I, I could go on and on and on with lots of examples, but the, that moment where you realize that something is actually going to change and it's because of what you and your friends helped try to make happen – irreplaceable and why you went to law school. Well, I really hope your kids do listen <laughs> and learn <laughs> about uh, about what you're doing. Um, so, Angela, who's your pro bono role model? Feel free to tell us about more than one. Oh, my gosh, so many. 
Um, Thurgood Marshall, without a close, just I can't even think another step is Thurgood Marshall, um, somebody who just said, we're going to change this issue, we're going to fight until we can get it changed for my life. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but gosh, I use his entire career as a role model. In my personal experience, uh, Bernadine Dorn, who founded the Children and Family Justice Center at Northwestern Law School, and while she's famous for a, for decades of work around the country in other areas, to me, she taught me that you, you don't ever stand down until the problem is solved. Um, the some of the most exciting people that I've met through my career, I would add to um, Rosemary Barquette, who used to sit on the 11th Circuit and was the first woman chief judge of the Florida Supreme Court, uh, one of the first women on the 11th Circuit, and just an outstanding voice of, this is outrageous and we have to make the world better for everybody, not just people that can afford it. There are Many other names, but I couldn't stop that list without mentioning um, Tom Garrity, who is the dean of Northwestern Legal Clinic, retiring here in 2016, and just a shaper of lives and careers all over the country, but personally a shaper of life and career of mine. You know, the kind of people that teach you things that it's 20 years later, and you're standing in a courtroom, and you're trying to make just a tiny quick decision, and you know that the decision that you made is still influenced by the way one of your mentors taught you how to carry yourself, how to weigh issues, how to make decisions quickly, um, and how to make sure you always keep the client first. That's stuck with me forever from all of those folks, and especially Tom. Thank you for telling us about those amazing role models. Um, Let's end with this one, Angela. If you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about pro bono or access to justice? I would knock down every court building and start again. (laughs) I really would. I would make them cozy places with um, couches where people sit and discuss justice issues. I would make them so that there's no doors, there's only places for everybody to come in, and that nobody gets to go home until until their problems are addressed. I would make sure that we reconsider every single time anyone puts a child in any kind of detention or takes their liberty. I would make sure that all of the energy that goes into making corporate America America successful was matched every single day and the amount of dollars, the amount of talent, and the amount of people in all of the systems that are supposed to serve especially vulnerable kids. So I'd probably have to knock down some schools as well. But this idea of all of that leads up to just one simple conclusion, which is that if I could raise a real magic wand, it would be to change the expectations. I think when most lawyers, especially lawyers in the private bar, walk into the places where quote unquote justice is being dispensed for poor people. What they see is not what they think of as the quality of justice that they would expect in their supposedly first-level um, nation. And if I could make it so that everyone's expectations were exactly that, not this is good enough, well, it's housing court, and you know, there's 800 cases, this is all they can do, unacceptable. I would make it so that every single courtroom um, had the expectation that it should run as great as our federal district courtrooms do when huge multinational companies are coming to them for justice, just like small children are coming to children's courts for justice. I'd change expectations if I could. Well, Angela, I think you've changed a lot of expectations today. And thank you so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for thinking anything I have to say is important enough to listen to, but I'm so excited and really um, happy to have had this conversation. It reminded me all the great reasons why I love what I do. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to Angela for joining us on our show. To learn more about us and our work, visit our website at probonoinst.org. 
New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. We'd be very grateful if you could subscribe, rate, and review the Pro Bono Happy Hour on iTunes. It's quick and easy to do. Leave a review by October 31st, and you'll be entered in our review contest. No tricks, only treats. In addition to the prizes, your honest feedback would make it easier for other listeners to find the program, expanding the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Thanks to all of you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.